0: This episode of Korea, the story you've never heard, continues our journey into a treasure trove of all but forgotten strategic lessons that could help as a reminder to the U.S. President and to the rest of us what motivates Koreans and what American officials have learned when dealing with them so far. Let's begin with the story till now. In previous episodes we've explored how American businessmen in 1866 tried to shoot their way into Korea's so-called Hermit Kingdom. They were killed. A few years later, a U.S. force struck back, killing hundreds of Koreans. Then, the U.S. eventually made a secret deal with Japan that turned Korea into a virtual slave state until Japan was defeated by America at the end of World War II. We know that all of the major powers, including Russians and later Soviets, have tried to carve out a chunk of Korea. As you probably know by now, this series takes you off the beaten path and explores highly relevant questions. How did we get to this crisis point in the first place? And what can we learn from a cascade of miscalculations, in some cases, no calculations at all, in the march toward a nuclear crisis? In this episode, we are at an important new takeaway point in Korea's journey. World War II is over. The U.S. forces that liberated Korea from Japanese tyranny are now stationed in the southern half of Korea, but not in great numbers. U.S. domestic political consensus seems to be controlling the foreign agenda. The message? Bring our troops home from World War II. Through a naive and rushed judgment, America has allowed the Soviets to control Northern Korea. The Cold War has begun, and those tensions are beginning to spill into the country. Yet at this point, Korea is still one nation. It,
1: it has to be remembered that nobody, not the Soviets, not the Americans, not the Koreans on either side, expected the division to be permanent over there to be two separate
0: governments on the Korean Peninsula uh, in 1945. This is Professor Charles Armstrong a Korean specialist at Columbia University. In
1: fact, the Americans and the Soviets met more than 60 times to try to work out some kind of of, uh, coalition or unified Korean regime uh, that both sides uh, would be able to support. Finally, though, the talks broke down in 1947. And uh, meanwhile, the Americans and the Soviets had been uh, supporting their own uh, people in uh, Seoul and Pyongyang, respectively. So uh, it, it, the, the Soviets certainly pushed for the political forces in North Korea to go in their direction, that is to say, for the domination of communist-affiliated Koreans to come to power in the North. It, it wasn't the case immediately. Uh, Kim himself had been uh, an active communist guerrilla fighter in, in uh, Manchuria.
0: Please excuse the interruption. Just a quick explanation. The Kim that Professor Armstrong is talking about in the 1940s is the late Kim Il-sung, who was North Korea's first leader. It is his grandson, Kim Jong-un, the current leader, who you see shaking hands with or, depending upon the political environment, shaking a fist at Donald Trump. Back to Professor Armstrong now, who's talking about those tense U.S.-Soviet talks in the late 1940s on the future of Korea.
1: But when the Soviet-American talks broke down in 1947, the U.S. handed over the Korean question to the United Nations. The United Nations called for uh, elections in, in Korea. Uh, the Northern, north Koreans and, or rather, the Soviet allies in the North, which were primarily Communist Party members, uh, and the Soviets refused to allow the UN election inspectors into the North and refused to recognize the UN sponsored election. So that it, the elections took place in 1948 only in the South, and the Republic of Korea was formed on August 15th, of 1948, uh, without uh, any real power over the north. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, the uh, the People's Committee, which was the, the communist-dominated provisional government in Pyongyang, oversaw their own elections, uh, which were you know, problematic um, in that it was very much skewed toward the uh, Workers' Party or the Communist Party. But they held their own elections, and uh, a separate regime was established in 1948 remember that this both governments the republic of korea in the south and the democratic people's republic of korea in the north were not not intended to be just the government of the south or just government of the north they were uh, explicitly proclaimed to be the governments of all of korea so what you had by september 1948 was two governments one in seoul one in pyongyang which claimed to be the only legitimate government of all the korean people on the korean peninsula So you had, in effect, already a civil war, uh, even though there was no shooting as such. Well, you did have quite a bit of of border clashes over the summer of 1949, when many people thought a war would break out. The Americans left in the summer of 1949. The Soviets had withdrawn in 1948, uh, but they also retained the advisory presence and continued to build up uh, the North Korean forces. There were very few Koreans who consider themselves communists, uh, there were probably even fewer Koreans that consider themselves liberal Democrats in the 1940s. Korea had had no real experience of any kind of democratic governments. Uh, it had gone straight from a traditional monarchy to a Japanese occupation to a foreign occupation of the Soviets and the Americans. So it's very hard to say what ordinary Koreans thought. They were probably not particularly committed to communism or American style democracy or anything else. What we do know is that there was a lot of, of violence in Korea uh, during those years uh, leading up to the Korean War. There were uh, very fierce clashes among uh, different political groups who tended to style themselves left and right, whatever that might have meant, it was not always clear to, to people. Uh, there was certainly no overwhelming support for communism in either the North or the South, but there was a very determined group of communists in the North who worked with the Soviet occupation to set up this new government. Uh, the, the interesting irony is that the, probably the most anti-communist place in, in not just North Korea, but all of Korea was the area around Pyongyang. It was a very conservative area. Um, and there were a lot of Christians, uh, a lot of sort of pro-American types Uh, who had to be uh, eliminated or, you know, had to be controlled in order for the the Soviets uh, and and their allies to have their way. So it was a very uh, complicated and confusing situation in which uh, ideology was not always clear. So I think it's important not to see it so much in terms of a well thought out ideology of communism that gets imposed, but a set of political uh, systems and leaders who are associated with the Communist Party uh, and with the Soviets who come into power in North Korea and then everything flows down from them. So it wasn't wasn't so much an ideological struggle uh, in which people really understood what communism was or what democracy was, but a struggle for power in which there were people affiliated with these kinds of ideological associations, which in the North. Uh, ended up being pro communist and pro Soviet. It was not the case that even Kim, perhaps especially Kim, really understood what communism was in any kind of ideological sense. He he wanted to uh, consolidate his own power. And, uh, this is the
0: original Kim.
1: Kim Asong, right. And so uh, very quickly the North Korean political culture under Kim evolved into something that in a number of respects was quite different from the Soviet communism that, uh, that that had been brought to them in 1945. I don't think there's very reliable data. There's some indications that are mostly, I think, based on uh, surveys taken in the South that uh, the majority of people were in favor of socialism. I, uh, now, what did they mean by that? It's not at all clear. Probably they meant um, some kind of a, of a economic redistribution uh, and uh, a more communal kind of political system, which in which people had a, a democratic voice. But if you asked people if they support, supported communism in 1945 or 1948, I think very few Koreans would have even understood what that question meant. Um, And it it had more to do with figuring out what their country would be like in this very traumatic aftermath of the end of Japanese occupation, Uh, who would be the winners and losers, who would be the new um, people on top? Would they be the ones connected with the old Japanese regime? Would they be the nationalist figures, the patriots from before? Um, And so on. Very few people in the north had really any idea what what communism meant, uh, but they were told by the new leaders that they were going to be ushering in
0: a new society of greater equality
1: uh, and independence.
0: Here's another interesting piece of the Korean puzzle. When we think of threats or aggression in Korea, we probably most often think of North Korea. But as Professor Armstrong points out, there has been hostile intent on both sides.
1: Once the two regimes came in, Uh, they were in Pyongyang and Seoul. They were formally established in in 1948, uh, the Republic of Korea in Seoul in in, uh, August, and then the DPRK, Democratic People's Republic, in Pyongyang on September 9th. Uh, It was clear that the leaders of both sides were not going to tolerate the the country divided into two. Um, One thing that all Koreans could agree on, whatever their political position, was that, Korea should not be divided, it can only be one country, but the difference was Sigmund Rhee, the leader of South Korea, also talked about attacking the North, he said quite openly that that was his goal is to take back the North from the communists, but the Americans wouldn't permit him or wouldn't support him in doing that. Uh, Kim uh, wanted very much to attack the South, although he didn't say that openly. He traveled to Moscow three times before the war broke out, 1st uh, in February of 1949, uh, only uh, six months after the country had been established. And initially Stalin said, no, the circumstances weren't right. Um, the, uh, the South has the support of the Americans. Uh, we don't want to end up fighting a war with the U.S., which could lead to World War III.
0: Now that is a huge piece of information in understanding what might have been The Soviets, in the first few years after World War II, were adamant that it was crazy to allow North Korea to invade the South because, reasoned Stalin, it could trigger a World War III with the United States possibly involving atomic or nuclear weapons. Not only does that indicate early, sober Cold War caution within the Soviet leadership, it also gave the United States a virtual guarantee that Korea would remain at peace as long as America did not send any signals other than what the Russians were hearing in their heads. In other words, we the United States, a nuclear power, are committed to protecting South Korea. Sure, the U.S. says that today, but not back then, when it could have prevented a war. It's hard to overstate the significance of that status quo all the U.S. had to do to avoid a Korean war was, well, do nothing much but stay put and be firm. What could go wrong? Plenty. Dean Rusk was by then the State Department official in charge of the Far East affairs. He was suddenly thrust into a horrible predicament. He explains. Back along 1947, early 48, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had come up with a paper on the strategic importance of Korea, in which they said that uh, since in a general war we would not wish to deploy our forces on the Korean Peninsula, we should withdraw from such forces from Korea as we had at that time. The State Department opposed that and succeeded in delaying any action on that attitude of the Joint Chiefs until 1949. Finally, President Truman agreed with the Joint Chiefs and ordered the withdrawal of the final regimental combat team. Now what that paper the Joint Chiefs did not deal with would be was the question as to what the situation would be if Korea itself became the, the locus of aggression. Here again is Professor Armstrong of Columbia University. With the withdrawal of U.S. troops in the summer of 1949
1: uh, and the increase in the size of the North Korean forces, especially with uh, a, a lot of ethnic Koreans coming back from the Civil War in China, um, the Soviets or Stalin changed his mind, uh, and uh, it, Kim lobbied very hard to get Stalin's support, and eventually he relented. Not because he necessarily believed what Kim said, but that he could see uh, from his point of view, objectively, it looked like the Soviets were going to win if they supported the North in attacking the South because the Americans weren't committed to defending the South and therefore the Soviets could extend their sphere of influence throughout the Korean Peninsula.
0: That perception in Moscow that the U.S. was not committed to fighting for South Korea was dramatically reinforced on January 12, 1950. U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson, under President Truman, delivered a speech at the Washington Press Club about the post-World War II foreign policy in the Pacific. He promised to protect the Philippines and other long-established American allies in the area. Then he made one of the most controversial statements in the history of diplomacy. Quote, so far as the military security of other areas in the Pacific is concerned, it must be clear that no person can guarantee these areas against military attack. It must also be clear that such a guarantee is hardly sensible or necessary within the realm of practical relationship, end of quote. Korea was not even mentioned. Dean Rusk, the U.S. State Department official who had five years earlier come up with the idea of dividing Korea along the 38th parallel, reflected years later on his boss.
1: Well, Dean Atkinson was a brilliant man. Uh, His interests really were concentrated in the North Atlantic in terms of his own strong sense of personal commitment. After all, he had played a large role in the building of the Marshall Plan and the construction of NATO. and, And from a geopolitical point of view, one can understand why this North Atlantic relationship was looked upon as fundamental. He had less interest in the little
0: yellow, brown, black people in various parts of the earth. And here's what Russ said about that famous speech. Dean Acheson's Press Club speech was
1: very important, not so much for what it exactly said, but how it was interpreted. Well, he described uh, our defense perimeter in the Pacific, and he left uh, Korea out of that perimeter. Um, His speech was widely interpreted as uh, writing off Korea.
0: Only months later, on June 25, 1950, North Korea invaded the South. In my next episode, how close the U.S. came at one point to losing the war and South Korea. Also, how close American forces came to pushing the North Korean regime virtually out of existence, but pulled back for reasons that are still debated today. Thanks to my guest, Professor Charles Armstrong at Columbia University. The Dean Rusk audio is from the Richard B. Russell Library for Political Research and Studies at the University of Georgia. I thank them for their help. I'll see you soon in the Korean War, coming up. Please share this perspective on the Korean story. I'm Mike Lee. Thank you.